0: And privacy
1: for that matter, it's a business problem. And it starts at the top and flows
0: down. Hello everyone and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's Law and Policy Podcast. This is episode 43 for August 26, 2020. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, I describe how California is providing data, a lot of data, to private investigators. Ben explains how Miami police were using facial recognition software to identify protesters. And later in the show, my conversation with Stephen Cavey. He's from Ground Labs. He's the co-founder and chief evangelist. And we're going to be talking about uh, the CCPA and what happens now that the six-month grace period ended on July 1st. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. cyberbit is offering cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire all right ben let's jump in with some stories here what do you have for us this week
2: so my story comes from the local NBC station in miami and you know me dave i uh Read every local news website in the country, and try you and try are
0: a to, news hound. Yes, yeah,
2: try and find the best stories for us. Uh, it's about an arrest of a young lady in Miami named Oriana Albernaz. She was involved in a protest on May thirtieth uh, against police violence in Miami, and she is alleged to have thrown a rock at a police officer. What's hmm. interesting about the story from our perspective is law enforcement used Clearview AI as their key piece of evidence to obtain an arrest. Hmm. So long story short, they caught somebody on a like, closed circuit camera throwing a rock. They couldn't quite discern who it was. They were able to match the shirt that that person was wearing to a sharper image that they found in another surveillance video of the same woman wearing that same shirt. From that video, they use ClearView AI software, and through their scraping technology from various social media websites, including ones that we all use: Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, they were able to identify the criminal suspect. Uh, and she was just arrested and apprehended. And you know, now we're talking about, you know, two and a half months after the original incident took place. Uh, Hmm. So here we have a a tangible example of law enforcement using this pretty controversial technology uh, to effectuate the arrest of somebody who was attending a protest. And so there are a lot of, I think, potentially concerning implications of this.
0: Hmm. Were there any warrants involved here? Did they have to make their case in front of a judge or did they just go out and do it?
2: They did not have to make their case in front of a judge because what Clearview AI does is it scrapes publicly available information. So there's Hmm. no need to get a subpoena. You know, there's no need to ask Facebook and Twitter to hand over data. It's all publicly available. It's just Clearview AI that is scraping that data. Now, as opposed to a lot of other police departments across the country, the Miami Police Department actually has pretty strict policies as it relates to the use of... Clearview AI and similar technology. Hmm. So, for one, you're not allowed to use it to obtain arrest information solely based on a person's First Amendment activities. And that's uh, a bit of a gray area here that kind of bothers me a little bit. So, obviously, okay. she, com- she ended up committing a crime. She threw a rock at a, at a police officer. That's a right.
0: That's that's what they're alleging.
2: That's what they're alleging. Exactly. Should right. I should say uh, right. always always use the word alleged there. But this did occur at what was you know a political protest and. Right. So, if you get into a situation where you have surveillance cameras everywhere,
0: which is the situation, I mean, which is the that, situation that as is as a, <laughs> that, that is the world we live in, right?
2: Yeah, right, as we've talked about a million times, you're going to get images of people who are at these protests, and you're going to potentially catch them committing crimes. I guess my thinking is. It doesn't really absolve them of any questionable behavior to say we don't use this on peaceful uh, activities because, of course, you're not using it on peaceful activities. You're not trying to effectuate arrests. The concern (laughs) is that you have this surveillance technology available at large-scale political protests. That's one level of concern here. Yeah, they also have a policy of keeping a log, documenting facial recognition searches. They do monthly audits. So it's a pretty comprehensive set of policies. But despite those policies... The criminal complaint did not note that Clearview AI had been used to effectuate this arrest. It simply said that they used, quote, investigative means, which hmm. of course they did. <laughs> I
0: don't know what else they would use. <laughs> and
2: it was only until this enterprising uh, local news station did a little of their own investigative work did they realize that the Miami Police Department was using this technology. So, you know, this is another way that people need to understand that their image is not protected out there. You do not have a sense of privacy, even if you are in an area where you think nobody is watching or you think that you can't be positively identified because, you know, maybe you see a security camera that looks like it's a mile away and you don't think, you know, they're going to be able to enhance the image and find you. When you have these this type of scraping technology, even if you've tried to stay relatively off the grid, there's enough public information about you online that their law enforcement are going to be able to effectuate arrests. So I think this is a warning to users out there that use these social media sites and also people who are attending these protests.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like the, the game changer here is is the efficiency that this affords law enforcement, where... I could imagine in the past if they had a, a photo, an image, something that they captured off of one of these security cameras, you know, they could canvass the neighborhood. They could go door to door. They could stand on a street corner and say, you know, pardon me, good citizen, do you recognize this person whose image is here on this video that we captured?
2: That's how it works in law and order episodes. Right. <laughs> uh, and in Traditional police work. Absolutely.
0: Right. But that's time consuming. And so you have this natural limit on their ability to do that and you know we talk about the thing about technology is that you sort of change the scale of things things happen at scale so it's it's an interesting i suppose game changer that police could load in footage into some of these facial recognition platforms and just narrow down who is in a crowd of protesters in a way that would have been impractical previously
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think this goes to a theme of uh, a lot of the stories that we've talked about, you know, specifically as it relates to things like location data. It used to take comprehensive police work to track a person. You know, Mm -hmm. one guy's shift would end, another guy's shift would start. Uh, You know, you'd have to be physically trailing somebody 24-7. Now that's not the case because we have GPS, we have cell phone location tracking, things of that nature. I think a similar dynamic is at play here where Police work that was resource intensive, it required a lot of time, it required a lot of money, is now very easy. And I think in the long run, that will cut away at privacy rights because it's going to be easier for law enforcement to make discoveries of people through this type of technology. Um, And I think that's why it's incumbent upon state governments in particular to develop policies that govern the use of this technology.
0: Mm-hmm. There isn't any mm-hmm.
2: guidance, for example, from the state of Florida on how to use Clearview AI when it's permitted, what sort of minimization procedures there are for the data. So, you know, it's pretty much every local police department for for themselves. And, you know, we all know that the federal government is going to move like, like molasses on this. So I think it is incumbent upon state governments to be proactive get out in front of this issue and try and figure out, let's let's set a policy here where we balance the value of, yes, we want to arrest people who are throwing rocks at cops, but we also don't want this to be such a ubiquitous tool that it ends up being a massive invasion of privacy.
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's an interesting example of that in this case, for sure. All right, well, my story this week, uh, this comes from uh, Vice, Motherboard folks. Uh, Once again, uh, Joseph Cox. Welcome uh, to the Joseph Cox podcast, Dave. (laughs) We really do need to send Joseph a a fruit basket or something. (laughs) Or maybe just get him on the show. Yeah. Uh, Well, the article he writes, it's called uh, California DMV is selling driver's data to private investigators. And basically it outlines how the folks at Motherboard uh, obtained a document from the California DMV which uh, lists pretty much everybody that has access to some form of DMV data. And it's a lot of organizations. <laughs> it's it sure 90, is. 000, 98, 000, uh, organizations or so that have access to information from the DMV. And they also point out that the DMV makes $50 million a year selling this data. There's a line in here that struck me before we go any further. Re- relevant to that, I got a chuckle out of this. It says uh, the California DMV told Motherboard, "Quote: The DMV does not sell information, but recovers the cost of providing information as allowed by law."
2: <laughs> that was extraordinary.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just I don't know <laughs> distinction without a difference. Yeah, but... <laughs>
2: that was so funny to me. It's like. That is, that's called a sale. That's called selling things. If you are compensated <laughs> right. for doing something, for providing right. a product, that's called a sale.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And uh, also, I mean, the, the California DMV points out that there are many, many legitimate uh, uses for this data, and perhaps the vast majority of it is used for things that most people wouldn't have a problem with. For example, if you're if you or I were hiring a truck driver in the state of California and we wanted to check their driving record that would go on this list that nobody would have a problem with that where it gets a little stickier are some of these things that you and I talk about here which are some of the uh, the privacy things and specifically they talk about private investigators Interesting to me that this article talks about a privacy, uh, a protection act. It's called the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, which was written in 1994. And it came to be after a stalker had hired a private investigator to get the uh, address of an actress. And the stalker then murdered that actress. And that prompted the creation of this Privacy Protection Act. But what's interesting is there are exemptions in it for businesses including private investigators.
2: Yeah, that was sort of curious to me if that was the impetus for that piece of legislation in the nineteen nineties. It seems like why would you have private investigators be included in the list of exemptions if the the incident that caused this law to be enacted was somebody hired by a private investigator. So that was one thing that certainly jumped out to me about this. The other thing that jumped out to me is that uh, I used to have a California DMV driver's license. And Mm -hmm. now I'm kind of glad that uh, I have a Maryland driver's license, although I'm sure they also uh, do all (laughs) sorts of things with my uh, personal information as well.
0: Right, right. Coming up next, how Maryland sells your driver's license information.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. We could do a a 50-state survey on this. Right, Um, right. You know, so some of the data they include is rather personal. When we're talking about address, phone number, even email addresses, they said that residential addresses are only going to be released in limited exceptions. But those, to my eye, aren't really enumerated. And a person's address is is extremely personal information. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it, it certainly jumped out at me that you can purchase that data from what is a government agency? I grew up in California. I know what it's like to try and develop a budget for that state, especially for an individual agency. So I'm, yeah. you know, I start by being somewhat sympathetic that the DMV would want to recoup what probably is billions of dollars of losses every year. Sure. By selling this data, uh, and I understand that, and I think it's good that they have a statute in place, at least theoretically that protects this data from being abused. But when we talk about data being used by private investigators to track somebody, if a a spouse suspects that their spouse is having an affair. You can hire a private investigator. That investigator can purchase data from the California DMV and use it to essentially stalk that spouse. And that yeah. obviously is, is a major privacy concern.
0: Yeah. I, another thing the article points out is that there are some California legislators who are who've reached out to the DMV to look for some answers on this and to dig in a little deeper. So. Uh, I guess not surprising that, you know, this is a hot area right now, data privacy. And so uh, I, it doesn't surprise me that this would attract some attention.
2: Yeah. You know, a member of Congress, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, who represents Silicon Valley. So she's um, always at at the forefront on a lot of these issues. She chimed in, wrote a letter to the California DMV saying that it's, it's basically abhorrent that the DMV sells this information to bail bondsmen, private investigators, other bad actors, saying it's a, quote, betrayal of the public trust. You know, this is ultimately an issue that's going to be decided at the state level. I think the path of least resistance would be to go back into that DMV privacy protection law of 1994 And, you know, try and narrow the exceptions a little further so that it actually does protect against private investigators in particular uh, or other potentially nefarious actors. You could have an exception simply be, you know, if you need it for, for safety reasons, like the truck driver instance you were talking about. I think that would be the easiest way for California to amend this law. I mean, there's not much at the federal level that Congresswoman Eshoo can do without just putting public pressure on the DMV and and trying to draw some eyeballs to what's happening.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me, and this is another reason this story caught my eyes, is just how much the use of our cars, the necessary use of our cars, has become such a window into our lives because our cars have license plates on them and we're not allowed to cover those license plates. You know, you're, you're mm-hmm. only allowed a certain amount of anonymity while you're driving your car because uh, there's a, obviously there's a good case that cars should have license plates. That, yes. I think most of us agree with yeah. that. That makes, that makes good sense uh, in the regulation of, of people driving. But, and here we are, we find ourselves in this situation where Uh, Again, the the gathering of that information and the the sorting and organizing of that information has become so routine that it functions at a level that's very different than it did when, when the system was originally put in place.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe we should all start using public transportation. It seems like cars are are driving surveillance machines. I mean, when you combine license plate readers and GPS technology and the DMV selling data to private investigators, you know, Uh, it makes me want to hop on, you know, the Muni Metro in San Francisco uh, instead (laughs) instead of, you know, getting in my car and driving. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, It gets to a broader theme, which is that we often do not have a choice as to whether to engage in these activities. If you want to be a productive member of society, in most places across California and across the country, you will need a car and you'll need to drive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there really isn't an escape route from exposing yourself to the type of data that's being sold here. Um, and yeah. that's something that, that always worries me. I always want to give the users or uh, the people who have obtained driver's license some sort of ability to opt out. And, you know, once you get that driver's license, once you submit that information, to know that it's fair game for private investigators, I think is certainly, uh, certainly something that's uh, piqued my interest.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there's ever been any plan. I you know, I've s I've know we've seen uh, you and I. I think have talked about the uh, you know, potential for digital license plates. You know, right. uh, but I wonder if if anyone has imagined a system where the license plate itself was some kind of encrypted code. You know that. You know, I wasn't them able Ideas, to. Dave. <laughs> 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 Well, as I'm thinking through it in my own mind, I'm, I'm thinking of all the impracticalities of it, and yeah. if something is. Uh, Yeah, well, anyway uh, A a boy can dream, right? Absolutely (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, that is my story uh, this week Uh, We would love to hear from you If you have a question for us You can call in Our number is 410-618-3720 That's 410-618-3720 You can also send us an email It's caveat at com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Cavey. Uh, He is the co-founder and chief evangelist at an organization called Ground Labs. Uh, And our conversation focused on the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, and the end of the six-month grace period, which ended on July 1st. Here's my conversation with Stephen Cavey. From a pure security standpoint, I think we all knew about the CCPA
1: and it was coming and it was released at the start of the year and everyone was given a heads up. And it's only just now on the 1st of July that the enforcement of it has started. And it's something that I think a lot of businesses really aren't ready for because we've been through this with GDPR in other scenarios. And what's very different here is that because of the way the California law process works, there was a lot less time for businesses to get ready and and be prepared for this new law. There was only six months or thereabouts of of notification from saying, right, this is now what the law looks like, start preparing, versus if we compare it to GDPR, because it's a reasonable comparison to make, there was two years of notification. It was May 2016 when GDPR first came out and, and everyone was given a heads up. And enforcement began in May 2018. And that's very different to how the CCPAs come about, let alone before we start talking about the whole pandemic situation, how that layers on to a very interesting time to introduce a new set of legislations around how businesses have to manage and, and deal with the personal information of people and there being some very severe penalties if you don't do the right thing.
0: Can you outline some of the specific challenges that businesses face as they're they're trying to reach compliance here? So the one that we most
1: commonly encounter because of the industry that we work in is the fact that so many organizations, or I would even say most organizations don't have a complete handle on all the personal information that exists within their business. And we've been doing this for the last 13 years working with businesses to help them understand where personal data is hiding across the business, across all of the possible places it could have come to rest inside the business in within the four walls and out into the cloud as well. And personal information can exist within a business for the most interesting reasons. And it's often completely off the radar of the security team or you know, for organizations that have the right level of maturity the privacy team, the guys who are responsible for needing to know where that information is. And there are so many different reasons, but often it comes down to out of band processes that exist within an organization. And and those processes, for whatever the reason, require access or require the need to collect personal information about customers or whatever their business is. And it can also be as a result of just systemic legacy processes. You know, we've always done it that way. And Mm. organizations may have been collecting a large data set about their customers for the longest time. And that information has been gathered and has been stored in in all sorts of different platforms, software, and and these days SaaS applications and, and other things that rest up in the cloud. It's a simple problem to understand. The larger you become, the more data you end up storing. And the more complexity that finds its way into your business from more people, more applications, more cloud providers, more processes, potentially more capture points uh, as you're interacting with your customers in different ways through through different platforms. And this is all creating more personal data storage as a result. And so it's making a a CCPA compliance program far more difficult to oversee and and understand. And so in, in our experience, this is often an area that businesses really struggle with traditionally the way a business would approach this is they would take a more manual based approach so they would probably create a spreadsheet they would go through every team every department speak to all the different heads of each division and ask them a set of standardized questions around data handling you know What data are you collecting? Why are you collecting it? What are all the fields that you're collecting? And do you need to be collecting them all? And and where does that data end up? What applications are you using? What what folders do your staff store these in? And, And through that, you develop a picture and you get a general understanding of where the business thinks data is being stored Now, the reality is that what people think and what's really happening are often two very different stories. Mm. And this comes about when you either work with uh, a very experienced set of people from a data privacy and security background or you bring in an independent consultant like an external security assessor, privacy assessor, and they review all the evidence that you've put together from all the different sources across the business And they'll then effectively take a a no-assumptions-based approach where they'll actually perform what we call a a data discovery process across the whole business. It's, It's not data discovery in the legal sense. It's data discovery in a security sense where the goal of the process is to uncover all personal and sensitive data that's hiding in every corner of the business, in every possible storage repository that exists. And very often, the results that come about from that sensitive data discovery process are significantly different from what the business had reported on. And it will often reveal far more areas of of storage where personal data is hiding. And it will often reveal out-of-band processes, Uh, unknown applications, perhaps even retired applications, and a lot of legacy data from the past where data that used to be collected in the business, you know, for different reasons, different processes, different applications, it's still there because we look at the past within a typical organization and the normal mentality was let's just store everything. You know, that's the easiest place to start. Uh, We'll store everything and then... We'll see if we need it later, because you never know what we're going to do later. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, no one's retrospectively now gone back and and looked at those decisions and and done the cleanup work, uh, particularly in this new world of regulation that we're living in.
0: You know, it strikes me that as storage became cheap, almost to the point of, of being, you know, meaningless. You could basically have unlimited storage. That led to this kind of pack rat mentality that, that, that I think you're describing here where people would say, well, this data might have value someday, so we might as well hang on to it. I've heard some people uh, describe sort of a shifting attitude to consider uh, stored data as almost being radioactive in that if you get too much of it together in one place, bad things might happen.
1: That's absolutely true. It's, it's funny that there's contrasting uh, or even conflicting, I should say, views out there depending on what side of the fence you're sitting on you know, from one, one view, it's the plutonium that you need to be really careful of. From another view, it's the new oil and it's, it's far hmm. more – it's the most valuable asset that a business has these days. And just to layer on further complexity to what you just said there, Dave, IDC put out a great stat uh, a few years ago and they forecasted that the, the volume of data was uh, f- expected to grow by a factor of 10. And in real terms, that's uh, you know north of 160 zettabytes. You know, that's, that's more than hmm. 160 million petabytes. And most of that data will be generated by enterprise businesses. And it's just further evidence that, yes, storage is cheap and therefore we're using a lot more of it but unfortunately, when it comes to the compliance and regulatory side of the equation, we're creating far more problems for ourselves as a result. And, and if we're not putting ourselves in check in what we're doing with that data and, and where it's ending up and what controls we're putting around that data, we're heading for a very dangerous time ahead uh, if businesses don't start to address that now. And I guess that's why you can you can understand why legislations like the CCPA are coming out because... Your average consumer now, my view is that they're suffering from data breach fatigue. Data breaches have been reported in the news so often from so Mm. many different companies of all sizes that uh, we're desensitized to it now. And unfortunately, it's going to continue to happen. You know, data breaches are are a normal thing now and, and there are so many different ways to break into a network and steal data. And so rather than thinking that we can stop the bad guys from coming in the front door or the side door or the back door, why don't we focus on why are they coming in and what are they looking for? Well, they're typically looking for data. So if we can find a way to take away what it is that they're looking for that they can go onto the black market and monetize, then that puts us in a far better position to just reduce the risk, but also reduce the potential damage that comes from the idea that if someone did find a way to break into your network, well, if there's not much left to steal, then the flow-on effect will be far less of an impact within your business.
0: What are your recommendations for that organization? And I'm thinking particularly of of small and mid-sized businesses who are, Faced with this increasing amount of regulatory items that they have to be compliant with, you know what, what's a, a practical, rational way for them to get started to have an idea of what they have and and what a good way is to to get control over it.
1: If you just look at the CCPA, its applicability is for businesses with twenty five million and higher in, uh, in in revenue. So you know you translate that into business size, it's probably. Uh, 100 to 150 employees and and above, depending on the industry and the size and where they operate. And so those types of businesses will be at the stage where they'll have people in the business who will have security knowledge. Um, The biggest problem we've seen in the past when you look at businesses of that size and smaller is that when something like the CCPA comes along, they'll typically look at it as an IT problem. You know, security is an IT problem. That's one of the classic statements, uh, and and it's not. You know, when you when you've looked at the different problems and and the reason why data breaches happen, security is a, and security and privacy for that matter. It's a business problem, and it starts at the top and flows down. You know, we, there's so many conversations now happening about the board level people needing to be a lot more aware of data security and data privacy to the point where the CISO now in in many organizations now has a reporting line to the board to tell the board and advise the board on what the company's security posture is. And you're now seeing representation at board level where security experience is necessity, just to make sure that that viewpoint, that that voice is sitting at the table when it comes to thinking about risk and, and other challenges that the business will likely face in the future. But uh, when we bring it back to your everyday size business that needs to deal with, you know, whether it's CCPA, whether it's GDPR, and, and frankly, any personal data, as we look into the future, any personal data is likely going to have regulation around it. And you're going to have to be aware of that. And you you can't ignore that. If you're collecting any form of customer data, you're going to have to make sure that the the right processes are in place. And I think Microsoft is a wonderful example on on where the world is heading, which is that you'll end up having to treat every piece of personal data that you collect the same. You, You shouldn't need to be differentiating between Californian customers versus other uh, states customers. And therefore, if you treat all of your personal data with the highest level of security, that will put you in a far better position to begin with in how you approach this problem and and how you minimize the risk of of suffering a data breach and provide uh, just better overall security posture within the business. So, you know, I think it starts with accountability. You, know, you need to appoint someone within the business to lead the initiative of uh, becoming compliant with the CCPA and, and all of the other future regulations. And uh, yeah, it would be nice if that was a dedicated role, but that's not always practical or possible. So you can start off being a virtual role. Uh, you know, Appoint that responsibility to someone and, and, and give them the initiative to take it into the business and make the business a lot more aware of what the obligations are around personal data you know, and to your point, Dave, it should be seen as toxic. It should be seen as, as something that's very, very fragile and it needs to be treated with the right level of respect. It's not something you can now just put into an Excel spreadsheet or a Word document and just email around freely to your colleagues or, or to external parties. There are consequences of doing that in today's regulatory environment if you haven't put the right protections around that type of data so having someone to to take the charge on the initiative to to bring the business into line and and make uh, all of the stakeholders across the business more aware of the obligations uh, but i think bringing it back to simple concepts it really does begin with the data you know the the, the biggest problem we're seeing is that the businesses are not aware of all the data they've collected. So if you make that a goal to begin with, if we're going to become CCPA compliant or compliant with any other security standard out there, privacy regulation that comes forward in the future, we have to start by understanding what what is the data that exists within the business. Once we understand that complete position I'm not just talking about the areas where we know there's going to be problems. We're talking about any area in the business that stores data. That'll include your emails. That will include all of your cloud providers. That will include all of your desktops and laptops and any servers that are still uh, on-premise within your network and anything else that stores data. Every byte of data must be reviewed to ensure that uh, sensitive data or personal data is uh, not being stored or, or doesn't exist in places that you're unaware of. Once you understand that, well, now you can start to build a, a program of work around how to ensure that that data stays secure and that you can comply with the CCPA and, and other regulations and that the business is handling that data in,
2: in an appropriate manner.
0: All right, Ben, uh, interesting conversation. Uh, What do you make of it?
2: Yeah, so I think the interesting aspect to me is the comparison with GDPR, in which companies had a longer transition time from when the regulation was enacted to when they actually had to comply. Six Mm -hmm. months is, uh, in any normal circumstance, a a very short time. Then you add in a, a global pandemic. And it becomes even shorter, so you know it's difficult for companies to come into compliance that quickly. And one thing that was also interesting to me is it's not that companies are trying to cut quarters; it's just that they're reliant on legacy process systems, and those Hmm. are very difficult to change. You know, it would take a lot, a lot of manpower uh, to replace those legacy systems, and that's just not something that many companies. You know, if you have twenty-six employees under the California Consumer Privacy Protection Act, you, you know you are are covered under this law, and it would take a lot of manpower to abandon those legacy systems if those systems are inadvertently collecting user data. So I thought this this was a very uh, interesting perspective on the impact of CCPA on, on some of these companies.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that I think is going to be interesting is to see exactly what kind of enforcement we see here. How aggressively is California going to go after things? Are they going to ease up a little bit because of the pandemic or, you know, uh, send out uh, sternly worded letters <laughs> at first? You know, do you, do you get a warning Dear uh, first? Dear sir or madam, you know? I'm very <laughs> right. angry at what Yeah, Right, right. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, much the same way that a lot of people were holding their breath and taking a wait and see with GDPR. I think it's natural that a lot of organizations will be doing the same thing with CCPA, and I bet a lot of them sort of whistling past the graveyard, hoping that the folks down the street draw the attention of the regulators before they do.
2: Absolutely, you know, and I think California is is kind of dealing with competing interests here. On the one hand, you don't wanna unfairly burden these companies, Uh, many Mm -hmm. of them are headquartered in your state, but on the other hand, I mean, you want to prove to California consumers that you're taking this law seriously as regulators. So they really do have to strike that balance.
0: All right. Well, uh, again, our thanks to uh, Stephen Cavey from Ground Labs for joining us. That is our show, and we'd like to thank all of you for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpe. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.